This is Real Estate Rookie Show number 65. We did everything just so that we felt comfortable or as comfortable as we could be. So that's kind of why I um, I feel like you need to get about 80% comfortable with something and then you can kind of move on and just make it happen because no matter what you're doing in your life, you're never going to be 100% comfortable with it. My name is Ashley Care, and if you're watching this on YouTube, it probably looks like I'm crying. <laughs> so I'm here with Tony Robinson, my co-host, and at the end of this podcast, we just heard a crazy, crazy story that I started laughing and, and started crying. So uh, it's not because it's sad. I was just laughing so hard, and now I just can't... My my eye was it won't stop watering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's how good the story was. But you know, so today we have Tommy Polisi on the podcast, and he shared so many kind of golden nuggets. And I, I love his story, Ash, because he's he's he went like down such a unique path. Like instead of just doing like the typical you know turnkey or burr, what we usually hear in the podcast, he's got a laundromat, he's got mobile home, he's got storage, he's got twenty three acres. He's got this, he's got that, and he's he's kind of going after the commercial route as opposed to the traditional single family investing that we see. Yeah, if you want to learn about commercial lending, this is the episode to listen to. Like he really goes in detail as to how to get a commercial loan, how does it work, and then just like his portfolio, how he manages it. And he actually moved because of COVID. He his job went remote and he moved him and his girlfriend to upstate New York and somewhere he had never lived before. And they bought this 23 acre property with probably what, four or five different kinds of revenue streams on this property. But we'll let you guys tell you about it. But this was a, a, a great episode. We had uh, many laughs <laughs> during it. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. Rookies, 2024 is the year to start protecting your rental properties with an LLC. But you don't have to do all the paperwork and filing yourself. Corporate Direct is your professional and affordable option for getting your LLC done right. They handle the state filings, draft your operating agreement, and act as your registered agent. They'll even help you comply with the Corporate Transparency Act, a new federal disclosure law affecting every real estate investor. Corporate Direct is a family business founded by attorney, author, and rich dad advisor Garrett Sutton over 35 years ago. Now, his son Ted is a licensed attorney working with him. Together, they've helped thousands of real estate investors form and maintain their LLCs and protect their assets. If you're trying to build a real estate portfolio, do not skip the LLC. 
Head over to corporatedirect.com slash biggerpockets to schedule a free 15-minute consultation with an incorporating specialist. Mention Real Estate Rookie and get a $100 discount on your formation. That's corporatedirect.com slash biggerpockets. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tommy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. First of all, before we get into your backstory, your portfolio, let's tell how you even got on the show. Let's tell that story here. Uh, so I was in Clubhouse. Ashley was in Clubhouse talking and I jumped in. She was talking about buying land. And uh, I actually just closed on a large land purchase in upstate New York, which has 18 units on it, a mobile home park, uh, some single families in a small apartment building and 23 acres. So I said, hey, I own some land. I also live on the land that I own, which is in a mobile home park. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> And from there, she was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it was so interesting. So that was like, Tommy, it was Felipe and I talking about land deals and what we have going on. And so Tommy jumped on and then it was like, uh, just Tommy talked the whole time about <laughs> this really cool deal that he found. So I'm like, we have to get him on the show. But if you guys haven't heard of Clubhouse yet, it's just another cool social media app, um, just talking and Tony's on there too. So you guys have to check us all out if you uh, are on Clubhouse. But Tommy, let's get to you and let's hear a little bit about yourself and how you got started in real estate investing. Yeah, of course. So I bought my first deal in July of 2019. I had been looking at real estate for a long time, like four or five years, maybe trying to buy it. And I just could not get started. Um, I'd been working in real estate professionally as like a finance professional analyzing real estate companies. And so I knew that it would be a good investment. I just, it was very hard to get started. It's hard to pull the trigger. And so in the beginning of 2019, I got pretty serious about it. I ended up interviewing like 20 plus brokers all over the country. I didn't know where I was going to invest. I was in New Jersey. I was in Tennessee. I was in Florida. I was talking to people everywhere and I just could not kind of get it going. But I ended up connecting with a broker in Philadelphia, Stephen Kennedy, who has been awesome. He's kind of like, probably the reason I got started, people ask me, why did you invest in Philly? And I used to say like, oh, the cash flow." But now I'm just like, kind of in hindsight, it's because he pushed me into my first deal very successfully. Uh, he just very helpful. What market was that first deal in again? Philadelphia. And wh where were you living at this time? I was living in New York City. Good point. Okay. In New York. So your so first is your first investment is out of state. Out of state, but still pretty okay. close. It was two hours away. I didn't feel comfortable yeah. going out of state for my first one. I just didn't want to be getting on the plane in case something went wrong. You know, now that I own real estate, right. I don't think it'd be very hard to do that. But at the time, it was a little scary buying something far away. And what does your portfolio look like right now um, before we get too much into to what that, that so is? So it's 30 units. It's one three unit in Philly, one six unit in Philly, a mixed use property in Newark, New Jersey, which has a laundromat on the ground floor, which we also own and operate, which is pretty crazy for many reasons. I can probably get into that later. Uh, and then this property upstate, which is 18 units, 10 mobile home lots, a five unit apartment building and three single family homes um, on 23 acres of land with some storage. So pretty diverse portfolio. That's the deal that I loved hearing about. And I can't wait until we like really go into that more, but just real quick, even the laundromat, how are you managing that business remotely? So I'm not managing it remotely. That would be almost impossible, okay. I think. <laughs> I have okay, a partner so on all a... of these deals. Yeah. Okay. Okay. My main partner is Mitch and he's he's on every deal with me and he's kind of the person that's taking charge of the laundromat and I'm kind of taking charge of the stuff upstate. Okay. Let's talk about partnerships. 
Of course. I, yeah. How did you find this partner? He was a friend from growing up. He, my, our parents are good friends. Our grandparents are good friends. I've known him my whole life. And I was looking at real estate for a long time by myself. And then I found this deal. I was going to part, partner with someone else on this, on this first deal in Philadelphia. And then we wanted a third partner. So I called Mitch out of the blue and I was like, Hey Mitch, I'm buying this deal in this real estate deal. And he said, great, I'm in. Where is it? <laughs> I was like, this is the kind of guy I need. <laughs> and so from there, he was just all in and we've been kind of together on this stuff ever since. That's how my partner and I got connected as well. Like I found a deal and you know, I, I knew I wanted to partner with someone. I sent him an email at like 1130 at night. He replied the next morning, like six o'clock in the morning. And all he said was, I'm in. And I'm like, that, I was like, that's it. You know, it's like, like, you know, it's that easy. So th there's definitely some value in having a partner that's kind of easy going. But mm -hmm. I, I want to back it up a little bit. You said that you're at 30 units and you started in 2019. Is that accurate? So we're, we're like, you know, what is that? Like maybe two years, give or take mm -hmm. a year and a half, somewhere around there. That's, that's, that's really, really fast, but it sounds like you, sounds like your portfolio consists more of like commercial as opposed to typical single family duplex, triplex. So as a new investor, Tommy, like what made you lean more towards the bigger commercial mixed use laundromat type real estate assets, as opposed to the usual burr fix and flip things like that? It was when I was analyzing my first deal down in Philadelphia, I was almost going to put an offer in by myself on the single family in Philly. And when I looked at the numbers after everything was said and done, I was going to be cash flowing like 50 bucks a month. And I just said, this can't be worth it. I mean, I think in hindsight, it would be, it actually would be worth it. Cause you get the appreciation. And now that I know more about real estate and investing in real estate, it would be worth it. But at the time I just thought this isn't worth it. And I just kind of skipped and I said, okay, I need to get onto something bigger and better. So I started looking at like 10 unit properties and then talking to some friends and they were like, I want in on this. Everyone just kind of wanted in <laughs> and I didn't know how to do any of that stuff, but um, I just figured out, figured out along the way. And so that's kind of how it happened. Yeah. So can we talk about the financing a bit? And it sounds like you're working with other people and that's how you're making it work. But if I want to go out and buy a big mixed use property or a 10 unit, you know, apartment complex, what are some of the financing options that I have? Or maybe you can share how you structured your deals. We've used commercial real estate, commercial investment financing. We can't use, this was something that I was confused about at first too. I tried, that was the other thing. I tried to get a residential mortgage and an LLC and they were like, nah, you can't do that. That's, <laughs> we don't do that kind of stuff. If it's a residential mortgage, it's in your own name. So then I kind of got thrown for another loop and I just started calling more people and being like, is this right? Like, I can't do this. And they said, now you got to get commercial financing. So that's when I just, and it kind of back to the brokers. I just kept making as many phone calls as I could. I think I, had a list of like 25 banks in the Philadelphia region. And I just went down the list and called every one of them. And then they all said the same thing, actually. I can't put it. <laughs> Usually it's like one of them will say, yes, you can do it. But this time it was just straight up no across the board. So then I said, okay, I have to revisit how I think about this kind of stuff. So the rates aren't as good, but it's still, you know, you're getting leverage at 75% at a 5% interest rate. That's very good, a very good deal. So when you're making these calls, who are you calling? Are you calling friends that are investors? Are you calling loan officers? So you, you have a problem. How did you know who to call to get the solution? Just kind of Googling and yeah, calling people that, like I call loan officers or I call, there were a few people that I knew that were doing deals and I would call them, but I didn't want to bother them too much. I mean, in hindsight, I could have bothered them more, but I just wanted to figure it out on my own and not, not bother anyone too much. So I... <laughs> I just would call as many people as I could on the same topic and until I got someone who would tell me I could do it that way. What about the actual structure with your partners? Are you guys creating an LLC and then you guys are all like kind of managing members and each one has its own stake and then the LLC is buying the properties 
or is there some other structure in place? We have an LLC for the properties down in Philly. So it's me and two friends on the properties in Philly. And we have one LLC that buys the properties down there. Um, and it's separate LLCs kind of at this point for each city. So we have an LLC for our Newark property, which we have two LLCs for our Newark property. One is the laundromat and one is the um, the real estate. And then we have an LLC for upstate New York. It's different partners on each deal. That's how I structure my deals too, is for each partner, I have a separate LLC with that partner. And then for my liquor store, we have a separate entity for the liquor store. And then the the building, the real estate is its own LLC. And that's something I learned from the investor that I worked for is that like gives you separate protection and makes those. So like if your you know, laundromat is sued, they can go after the laundromat, but they can't go after the building because that's a separate entity. So it's just kind of a way to protect yourself and to separate your actual business from the real estate of the property. So I love that you guys did that. Now for your ownership of the partnerships, is it like, okay, you each are putting in a third of the money, you each own a third of the LLC or how does that work? Yeah, just we're all equal partners. Yeah. On this upstate deal, we did it. Um, we brought in like a kind of a, a friend of a, my my friend's dad just invested like a second, like a second note, almost a promissory note in the property mm-hmm. just to help us kind of close it with some more money. We were kind of running out of money at that point on our fourth deal. So we needed a little extra, a little extra help. So at first you guys are each putting in your own money for the down payment and then doing commercial mortgages on it. Yep. Correct. Okay. What mm-hmm. advice, uh, when, you know, rookies are talking to lenders on the commercial side, what, what advice do you have? What should they look for in a lender? Is it just who gives you the best rates, the best terms? And what other questions should they be asking commercial lenders? The most important part for me was like assurance of closings and just easy to work with. I didn't want to be caught about the closing table without a mortgage. So I was looking for someone who I knew would be able to close. And that part of it is just knowing how many, talking to them about their experience doing these kinds of deals. You know, do you finance people like me? Do you finance people that do small deals? Because it was commercial financing, but it was still a three unit property. And that's not, most commercial lenders don't want to do that, um, that I've talked to. It's just too small for them. So I'd be like, did you, have you done a three unit? Have you done a six unit? Have you done these small types of deals before? Because I don't want to have you go to credit committee and say, this is not worth our time. Um, so just kind of asking their experience with deals that you've done. I want to dig in a bit more on how the the commercial financing works, because we don't, we don't have very many folks who come on a show that, mm-hmm. that use it. Um, so you, you create your LLC. You guys, you know, and there's an LLC agreement that says, you know, you own this percentage, you own that percentage. But when you're actually getting approved for their loan, are they underwriting the property by itself? Or are they also looking at you as the owners and saying, you guys need to have some sort of like, you know, liquidity between you or like you guys need certain credit scores? Like, how does the actual approval process work on a commercial loan? It's a little bit of both, I think. Um, On the smaller deals, they're, they're definitely looking at your personal credit, but they're also looking at the building. Um, but for example, the mortgages in my LLC don't show up in my credit report. Um, but you still need to have a good credit score and have a good, they ask for your personal financial statements. They ask for your background and they want to know if you've done something like this before. So they do kind of focus on both. And that's for every lender across the board, even the big lenders, they want to know what you've done in per, your personal financial situation. It's no matter what, they're going to want to know what's going on there. Um, and so, because with these smaller loans, uh, typically under a million dollars, you don't, it's called a recourse. So that means that you're personally liable for the loan. On larger loans, a million plus, you could get non-recourse financing, which means you're not entirely responsible if the building goes completely wrong. When I used, you can kind of almost hand back the keys if it goes too wrong on a $10 million property, but you can't do that on a $500,000 property, which is frustrating for me, but I'm going to get there one day. 
Yeah, I like that you pointed out how it doesn't show up on your credit report, these commercial loans, because if you go to get a residential loan, that's not your debt to income isn't going to be hurting at all because you have all of these commercial mortgages. So when you actually go to buy an investment property or buy a primary residence and get that, you know, nice 30 year fixed low interest rate, they're they're not even going to see those uh, mortgages that are in the LLCs. So that, that really helps your debt to income ratio, which is a, a huge benefit. Was there anything else that you wanted to add as to what rookies should look out for when um, selecting commercial mortgage? What about the income? So like you're buying a property, maybe the income isn't that great or there's no income at all. What do commercial lenders look for on the income side of it? Because they're appraising the property, but they're also looking to make sure that there's going to be revenue. What a great transition into my laundromat, which doesn't make any money. (laughs) 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 Um, For that one, we had to get a private money loan. Uh, which is just a very high interest rate loan with very high fees up front. But there was only one tenant in a two unit building. And uh, we're, it was just so below market. Like the market rents are probably $3,000, $3,500. And we, they were getting $800 a month for this property. So wow. like, obviously a commercial bank is not going to want to do that financing. And we couldn't even get commercial financing if we tried. So we had to go to a private money lender to, uh, to get that kind of money. And then is your goal after you show a couple years of income on your tax returns for this property is to go and refinance that with a commercial mortgage? Yes, yeah, so I'd like to do it as soon as humanly possible. I yeah. hope that after we, <laughs> yeah, after we renovate it, we can show that the new rent roll and just go to a bank and um, talk to them about like, look, this is what we're making now. So can we get a loan that justifies the, this income? We talked to some banks already kind of before we finished and some of them say you need five years of income. Some of them say you need three years of income. So kind of back to my previous method. I'm just going to keep calling until I find one that says you're good. Yeah. I mean, you're really doing a burr on a commercial property mm-hmm. is basically what it sounds like. So yeah, right. very cool. Do you want to um, dive into this, and Tony, unless you have anything to follow up on his p- portfolio uh, before we go into his deal? Yeah. Before we get into the deal, just like a couple of things, because you, you've got a few different asset types in your portfolio, right? You've, it sounds like you got this cool land deal that I'm sure we'll talk about. You've got this laundromat. Like, how are you selecting what types of assets to add into your portfolio? Like, are you are you going to add like a storage unit? Are you going to do like a I don't know? You're going to buy a farm in up, you know in upstate New York? Like, what what else is next on on the on the buying list for you? I was struggling with that in the beginning when I was doing all these crazy deals because I was like, I wonder if I have shiny object syndrome. Like, am I just doing all these deals that don't make any sense? But I kind of think the way it's working is I'm just being a bit more opportunistic and creative with some of the deals that I'm looking for. So the only deal that was really like straightforward was the first deal we ever did, a three unit down in Philly. The next deal I did, I found on Craigslist and that was six units, which was crazy. And I actually found that deal while I was listening to a Bigger Pockets podcast. Uh, Gabe Hamill, I think was his name, was talking about how he used to find deals on Craigslist. And I said, there's no way in this day and age you could find a deal on Craigslist. And I go on Craigslist and I go to my, like right where my current, my first property was, and within three blocks of that property was this killer six unit deal. And I just was like, I can't believe this. This can't be real. This is a fake listing. And I called and it ended up being real. And we, uh, we closed 60 days later. So you're really just looking for like the opportunities and, and trying to capitalize on those. But it, like each one of those has to be analyzed in such a different way. So how are you, how are you educating yourself on how to analyze a land deal versus a laundromat? Because those are two totally different asset classes. I think it's a lot of research. I do. I am obsessive. I do so much research when I don't need to, probably. I just am constantly listening to podcasts, reading books. I feel like I've read every real estate book. I've listened to every podcast. It's just crazy. But on top of that, 
going into the deal, I also feel like I do maybe too much due diligence, if that's even possible. Like for the laundromat, we had people look through the sewer lines just to make sure that there were no issues with, you know, the water lines and stuff like that. I just kind of go over overkill in the due diligence to make sure there's nothing wrong. In this property upstate, we had someone come out and separately inspect every house on the property, every septic tank, every water line, everything. Like we did everything just so that we felt comfortable or as comfortable as we could be. I feel like you're never going to get 100% comfortable with anything. So that's kind of why I um, I feel like you need to get about like 80% comfortable with something and then you can kind of move on and just make it happen. Because no matter what you do in your, in your life, you're never going to be 100% comfortable with it. My agent, and I, I see this all over, is that the market is so hot right now, like you can't even ask for an inspection. You'll They'll never accept your offer. So with you buying these off-market deals, do you think you have an advantage asking for these full inspections and really getting into the properties? Yeah, I just think it's so unique that there's not that many other people looking at them. Exactly. So it's like, mm-hmm. who wants to buy... And this is part of the issue too, is who wants to buy this property. It's ten, like it's such a unique property. I'm a little concerned about liquidity if I ever wanted to sell, but at the same time, no one else is buying it. So like <laughs> I kind of had some leeway, I guess, with, uh, with the purchase, with the, with, um, that kind of stuff. And we can get into that deal more later, but just these weird deals, I feel like you can get a little more leeway. It's not like I'm asking for a price reduction. I'm just asking to do my due diligence. So I think if, it, if they're reasonable, it's a reasonable request. And you mentioned Craigslist a little bit, but how else are you looking for these deals? And is it more you're just scanning any kind of property deal in general because you have, you know, the laundromat building, the mixed use, you have the three unit, you have this land and these mobile homes. Is it just you're scanning and anything that catches your eye, you will analyze it and be open to it? Yes, literally. That is what I yeah. do. As I'm driving around, that's what I'm doing. I have LoopNet open. I have Zillow open. I have everything open. Just like, oh my God, that's for sale. I didn't know that was for yeah. sale. Let's check it out. <laughs> So, so one last question for me before we move on to the to the Ricky deal, because again, I think what's really unique about your story, Tommy, is that you've got you know you didn't just do like the single family burr strategy, which is what we see a lot. What do you feel you've done that's made you successful in the commercial space? That if I, as a newbie investor, someone who hasn't done any deals, if I wanted to go in and do what Tommy did, what were the things that you did that made you successful? Was it your team? Was it your your market selection? Like, what were the critical pieces that made you successful as a commercial real estate investor? I think it was definitely my team. My partner was huge on all this stuff. I think I was maybe iffy on some of the deals, probably all the deals after the first, the, the, these last two, the laundromat and the upstate deal, I was kind of like a little iffy on. And he's just a bit more, if you think I'm a little aggressive, like he is just like, let's do it. I want I want in on this deal. And he said, we'll figure it out. We'll just figure it out. And so he just kind of kept pushing it. Even when I was like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I want to do this one. He's like, I got it. If you don't want to do this part, I will do this part. Like for the laundromat, we have to go collect the cash. And I said, I'm not going to Newark, New Jersey on a weekly basis to pull a thousand dollars out of, out of the, out of the machines. Like, that's not something I'm doing. And he's like, I'll do it. Don't worry. And I said, okay, if you want to do that, that's fine with me. So I feel like a lot of it was just kind of the mindset and the partner that I had, which was luckily more aggressive than me. And I think you see that a lot more on the commercial side of real estate than you do on like the residential side. Like you can be a one man, a one woman show and go flip a house or uh, do a bird deal or, you know, buy a turnkey investment. But as you get into bigger and larger deals, you don't see like a one person show that's taking down a hundred unit apartment complex. Right. Like it's it's a team of people that do different parts. You have one person that's like doing the due diligence. You have one person that's working on the financing. You have one person that's like raising the funds from investors. So if you want to scale to be super successful in like the bigger arena of real estate, it definitely comes down to being able to build a team. So I, I love that your experience has kind of echoed that as well. 
Yeah. And when you build your team, you're looking for people that compliment you and aren't the same. And Tony and I were actually talking about this when we were just on another Zoom call is how we would not work well together wholesaling because we both want to be the people behind the computer sending out the direct mailers. But <laughs> we're not the people that are going to go and like actually talk to the sellers and, you know, get them to sell to us, the closers. So, um, yeah, it's like finding those key people like you didn't want to go collect the money, but your partner was fine going to collect the money from the laundromat. And he actually ended up buying a place like a mile away. He read the first chapter of Brandon's buying real estate with no money down. I, I called him after he read it. He's like, I read this. I read the first chapter of this no money down book. He went to buy a house hack literally a mile away from the laundromat. Um, that was uh, a dentist <laughs> office on the ground floor and five bedrooms in the top floor. And it's a student housing. So he lives with currently four undergrads and he's a 30 year old man. So <laughs> pretty weird. Reliving his college days again. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. I'm going to have to reread that book. I don't remember that part. Yeah. I didn't get that part from the first chapter in the book either. You know, I must've, I must've been reading the wrong way. You're just so well, inspired. <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let's, let's talk about a specific deal, Tommy. So it sounds like you want to talk about the, about this land deal. Mm-hmm. All right, so let, no, let's that's what in. I want him to talk oh, that, about. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was the mandatory part of you coming on the show. Yeah, yeah. talk about the land deal. So I, I just want to kind of give an overview first, Tommy, for the listeners. So I'll ask you some quick questions. Just give me a quick, quick one word or two word answer back, and then we'll do a, a little bit more of a deep dive after that. But what market was this property in? Upstate New York, like a half hour south of Albany. Got it. And you said this was a, a land deal, correct? So just straight land, no structures or anything like that? No, it has 18 units on it. 18 rentable units. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. So this deal is even more interesting than I thought initially. All right. So you got 18 yes. units on this. Yeah. And break down what those 18 units are real quick. Yep. yep. 10 mobile home lots, uh, three single family homes, one five unit apartment building, eight storage units on 23 acres. And there's also <laughs> develop like there were there were plans to previously develop uh, in much, much, much more developments up here. They, they had wow. like... 33 unit mobile home development plan that didn't go through. And what's your strategy on this property? Is this like a long-term buy and hold or are you just kind of, I don't even know what you do with all those different types of homes. Like what's, what's that? What's the strategy here? Well, it works as is, which is the reason we bought it. We figured the downside was very low, like worst case scenario, cash flow is 10%, you know, that's like, Got it. okay. If that's like my baseline scenario with 5% vacancy, 10% CapEx, 5% management, very, you know, conservative assumptions on like landscaping. If that's the worst case scenario, we should do this deal. And then there's yeah. tons of upside because we have all this land that had pre plans to previously develop and so much space. So we're really in the process of figuring out what we can put on the land. We've been going back and forth. Like, should we do Airbnb? Should we do more mobile homes? I think the mobile homes could be tough because of just the town. Apparently in 2008, when they tried to get this passed, it was a long story that I just heard yesterday from the local salvage guy, but there were like people picketing at the town hall when they were oh, passing wow. this through the town hall. So I don't know if that's possible, but we're going to see if we can do something else. <laughs> but you got some options, which is good. So you yep. said 23 acres. What was the purchase price on this? 740000 Wow. That is an awesome deal for, for $740,000. Um, so I, I guess kind of give us the backstory, right? So how did you find this property? What made you think that this was a good deal? Lead us to how you got this one under contract. So again, my partner was kind of, he was going upstate for the weekend back in April or May when COVID hit. And he said, let me know if you see any properties on the way up that you want me to look at. So I said, all right, sounds good. Then I started looking at properties upstate and I was thinking, oh, I should maybe house hack like a, if we're all working from home, I should house hack a duplex or a triplex up by one of these ski mountains. That might be a cool thing to do. I'll probably be working from home for a few months. I could probably swing it. Um, I'm still, still working from home a year later, but <laughs> that's another story. But so I was thinking, okay, yeah, let's, let's look at some of that kind of stuff. And then again, driving up on Zillow, I was like, oh, this is a weird deal. $740,000. This is, this is not a normal property. This is very weird. And so we swung by and we looked at it. We talked to the seller 
And this was like height, the height of COVID when the realtors weren't even showing properties in New York state. So we had to meet directly with the seller, um, keep our distance. It was, it was really weird, uh, a really weird experience. But um, after that, I was like, yeah, I'd love to do that deal. It's too bad. We don't have the money to do it. And my partner, Mitch was like, we'll figure it out. Let's do it. <laughs> like we can, we can figure this out. And I said, all right, I guess let's try and do it. I, that was, that was how we found it. And that's, that's how we put it under contract. Um, and at the time, everything up here was fly, like flying off the market, 10, 20% over ask because everyone wanted to get out of the city and this property we were able to get at ask. So part of the reason it was so kind of the earlier point unique. Was this just listed on the MLS or was it on some other platform? It was on Zillow, which I thought was weird because it seems like more of a commercial deal. And I think maybe that's why it wasn't getting the attention. I, I still think if it, even if it was on a commercial database, it wouldn't have gotten that much attention because it was, you know, if you're looking for a mobile home park, you're looking for a 50 unit mobile home park. If you're looking for an apartment building, you're looking for an apartment building. You're not looking, it's just, who wants this? Me, I guess. <laughs> but most people probably don't. So how did you end up finding the money for this? Mm -hmm. How did you fund it? I was able to, in my friend's group chat, talk about how cool this deal was and wait for someone to be like, I want to end this deal. Um, some some sucker. So he said, yeah, I'll, I'll join you guys. <laughs> and so uh, he was the one who kind of put us over the edge to where we could fund it. Okay. So you're also house hacking this property, but did you do a commercial mortgage? Cause you probably weren't able to get a residential mortgage on this. Yes. It's a commercial mortgage, which I'm kind of renting this personally from the LLC. Okay. And for a cheaper rate, since I'm managing it as well. And I'm hoping my tenant doesn't knock on the window while I'm uh, <laughs> doing this podcast. Cause I'm, they, they all live next door. I have 17 neighbors that are also tenants. <laughs> do they know that you're one of the owners? Yes. That was a yeah. mistake. Okay. Right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I didn't know how else to do it. Like the previous guy had owned it for 40 years and it would have been weird. I think if I were like, I'm the manager coming in, doing all these things the right, like my way. Um, these people have been living like this for 40 years and um, the previous owner, it was his dad's and he just knew everyone here. And he, at the end of his life, he passed away a few years ago. But the reason they knock on the windows and knock on every door in the house literally is because he couldn't like move around that well towards the end. So he would just have people knock everywhere until they, until he heard, until he could let them in. <laughs> so I need to kind of maybe put some restrictions on, on where they can knock. I, I want to talk yeah. just really briefly about like the, the analyzing portion of it, right? Because there's so many different pieces of property on there. Like, how did you know that this was a good deal? Did, did they give you like a, a rent roll or like, Hey, here's our income and expenses for the last 12 months. Like, what did you look at to say, yes, this makes sense. Well, they gave us the rent roll. The rent roll was around 103,000 for the year. So around 12,000 monthly rent roll. Um, and I was able to just, look at different, you know, mobile home parks that sold for, uh, in the, in the area and what, what those went for. I was able to look at apartment buildings. What did those sell for, sell for the area? What did single family houses sell for? What did storage sell for? And just kind of put them all together. And when I put it all together, I was like, this is a million dollar property. Just no one wants to buy it because it's so weird. Got it. So, so you looked at like comps in the area, you said, okay, this is what we think that, that this can do like in the marketplace and you use that to kind of justify your decision. What about, what about the storage? Like the, the, you said there's storage units on there as well, right? Yes. Very, very yeah. below market storage containers, which I can see from my window. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Interesting. Yeah. Did you have any vacancy when you acquired this property or have to do any major repairs or was it pretty much turnkey and you kept everything as is? Those, that's a very simple question with a lot of detail or for, for my answer, but it was, there were three vacancies. One of them was the seller's house, which I convinced my girlfriend to move into with me uh, somehow. Uh, the other one was uh, a, a single wide trailer, a uh, mobile home, which was previously occupied by the seller's stepsons. Um, we recently sold that with seller financing. And the other, it was kind of vacant, 
but it was a, a the double wide on the property, which is a very, very nice. It's like, this is a nicer than any house I'm going to live in for a while. It's a super nice house. It was built in 2005. Really, really nice. And it was an estate sale. And we were able to buy it out of an estate sale for $27,000. Um, and we actually went under contract last week to sell it for 72000 putting like $500 of work into it, which was just like fixing a leak, leak in the sink. So that's kind of the beauty of the property is that there's so many different ways to, so many levers to pull to add value and to make, you know, to make money and make it worthwhile. Yeah, that's what I like about this property is that you have so many different revenue streams coming in. And this is like something that really attracts me. Like, okay, residential rental income, you have commercial rental income with the storage units, you have the single family income, you have the potential with these vacant, the vacant land, like you could sell off a parcel, you can develop on there. Like there's just so much you can do with this and like, okay, like maybe storage units, they be somehow become obsolete. Well, you still have other revenue streams to get you through that. So that's what I really like about uh, this property. And I was also always kind of looking for a mobile home park. I've been looking for mobile home parks since like 2016, when I kind of first was like, I want to buy real estate, but I never was able to pull the trigger. I was I was so into mobile home parks in like 2015, 2016, because for my job, I would analyze them. I would analyze the big ones like Equity Lifestyle, Sun Community. And I was like, I had to buy a mobile home park one day. This is, this is so smart. This is a good idea. And then I guess maybe Brandon, Brandon buying a mobile home park kind of inspired me to get, to really get going. Um, he bought a mobile home park and lives in Hawaii and I bought a mobile home park and live in upstate New York. So I think I took a wrong <laughs> turn somewhere, but uh, uh, hopefully he will get there one day. Yeah. So tell us what your experience has been like. Who, well, first of all, who manages your other properties? Is that you or a partner? You outsource that? That's Mitch again. My partner. Okay. So now how yeah. has that transition of your whole lifestyle changed since you moved and you are now an on-site manager? I mean, that had to be a huge lifestyle change and transition. Yeah. And the funny part is that when we bought the first property within the first week, I was kind of the one managing the property. And I was like, I can't do this. Like I'm going to hire a property manager. I hate, I hate this. I really hate this. Like I, if it weren't, I want to sell this thing. This is, this is terrible. And then Mitch again was like, I'll stepped up and he said, I'll, I'll do it. And I said, okay, I'm good with that then. Um, And so then this property, I kind of got used to it over the, over the year being like, okay, I guess managing a property isn't that bad. And then this property, I don't, yeah, it's been a crazy experience. Um, mostly fine. Everyone is very nice. I feel like I got very lucky, but it was also because we talked to the seller, we developed a relationship with the seller and we kind of felt comfortable that he had put good people in the property. He was a good person. We're still friends today. You know, he comes by every so often, picks up mail that gets delivered here and we chat for a while. Uh, I've went to his new house that he bought, which is much nicer than the house that he left me, but that's okay. I'll get there one day. Uh, So it's also just kind of like a gut feeling of this guy probably wouldn't but like criminals in these units, I don't think. Uh, and I've, that was kind of very comforting to me. Have you had any, like, we call them the toilet bowl stories after Brandon <laughs> Turner shared his, what, have you had like that knock on your bedroom window, like at 3am, like, Hey, come fix my toilet. And are you doing the maintenance even yourself? Or do you have someone come take care of that? We have someone come take care of it. I've been trying to do mm-hmm. some of it. I'm trying to get more handy. My dad like built houses growing up, growing up. Uh, and I, can't build a house. I can't do anything. So I've been kind of working through it. Um, he's, he's slowly becoming very proud of me as I've developed a, a like a, a workshop here now. Uh, he's coming up this weekend to, uh, to see it and admire it and talk about my tools. So it's pretty funny, but yeah, within my first week of owning the property and living here, I had someone call me and say, I, my, uh, my toilet isn't working. And I was like, Oh my God, already. Uh, and I was like, what's wrong? Is it, is it clogged? She's like, I think I just need a plunger. And I was like, okay, well you can probably go get one of those at the store. And she said she didn't have a car. And I said, 
okay, I don't know what to say here. <laughs> I guess I'll go pick up a plunger for you next time I'm out. I don't know what to do. I'm kind of have a full-time job. I'm, I'm on phone calls right now. Yeah. Uh, and she said, okay, I'll figure out, I'll see if I can do anything. So she should be able to get uh, her neighbor in the property to give her a plunger. But that is kind of the beauty of the mobile homes is that most half the units, we don't have any maintenance on. It's just the apartments really where there's maintenance. And there seems to be a lot of it, but that's okay. So that's because the the people living in the mobile homes own the mobile mobile homes, and they're renting the lot from you. Correct. Is that correct. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, do you have it? To, that's all of the mobile homes you said that are like that. Now that's the case. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I think that's great, and I've heard Brandon Turner talk about this too. Is like you just rent out the land, and then you don't have to worry about the maintenance and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And then the people own the trailer, so then it's a lot harder for them to want to leave because I've heard that it's very expensive to actually move a, a mobile home. But it's also so affordable. Like living up here, I, I kind of heard the benefits of how affordable it is to live in a mobile home. And the living up here, I've really like seen it firsthand how affordable it is. Like one of the tenants yeah. we just moved in, we did seller financing with him. He's paying 800 bucks a month. Uh, his previous living situation was with roommates and, his, and a family. He has you know three kids and, and a wife and he was living with roommates in a very small apartment. And now for the same price, he's living in a mobile home that he owns. I mean, if you're handy and you can fix things, it's such a great deal. It's like a no brainer for a lot of people. And also he has his whole, like a whole house and space. It's just like a, it's a great thing. I need a button here on my soundboard that just goes like, Boom, another revenue stream. You're doing seller <laughs> financing. You are collecting that income. <laughs> this show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation homeowning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. Whether you need to buy or sell, or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. 
Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find the home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours, even the same day, with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. I, I want to talk a little bit about like the systems and processes you have in place to manage all, all the units around this piece of land. Like our are you guys just using Excel files? Like, how are you managing uh, this property? Great question. I actually just, as you asked that question, I realized that I use Buildium, which I heard about on Ashley's first podcast on the Bigger Pockets podcast. That's where I heard about it. And that's where I said, I should get that software. That's a good, sounds like a good software. So um, yes, that we use Buildium as the rental management software, which is really helpful for all of our properties because they accept cash payments at CVSs. So some of our tenants down in Philly like to pay in cash. And instead of them sending us money orders or going to pick up cash, they can just go drop it off at the CVS and we, it comes right to our bank account. And it just makes it so much more... I, I hesitate to use the word passive because it feels like nothing is passive, but uh, just a lot easier to, um, to manage. So yes, Buildium is the one thing that we use for kind of rent collection. And eventually I would like to um, hire some virtual assistant and kind of get the tenants using Buildium, using the the inspection aspect of Buildium and making them submit stuff on the app so that it kind of comes to me through another, through like a, a first kind of screen of some sort. Right, exactly. Yeah, so if when you're right now, I mean, did most of those residents on this property like pay, come and pay cash, hand in their checks? How has it been transitioning them to using software? This is pretty unbelievable. And when I, I told my partners I wanted to use Buildium, for this reason, I said, we should have to use Buildium so that we can, because yes, there was like a, a lockbox where people used to drop off ca- che- checks and cash and mm-hmm. it's a lot of older tenants. And I figured there's no way, well, I thought I was, I was hopeful. My partners were like, there's no way people want to do this online. Um, and then when I went around to introduce myself in the beginning, I gave a bunch of people, I was like, yeah, we, we, we can collect rent online. Half of them were pretty like, oh, that's great. I like paying things online. A couple of them were like, ah, my Facebook just got hacked. I don't want to use that internet. And I was like, okay, well, We'll see. And then that same tenant, like later that later that month was like, what's the website to pay on? I was like, oh, it's it's this. And yeah. it's just like really weird how some people I don't know how it happened, but that most people pay online now, which is which is great. Have there been any like big challenges that you're like that made you maybe second guess getting into such a big deal, especially as a house hack? Like you talked a little bit about like managing the tenants, but anything else that because I think the managing tenants comes with any house hack, right? But yours, because it's like a mixed use property with all these kind of different structures on here. Have there been any unique challenges because of that? Yeah. I mean, up front, there were just so much, there was so much CapEx. Uh, within the first week of buying the property, it's private water, private sewer. Within the first week, we had water lines go to half the mobile home park. They were leaking and the maintenance guy comes up and says, hey, you got uh, you have a leak somewhere. I said, okay, fix it. Do whatever you got to do. I don't, I don't know how to do this. Uh, let me know what the deal is. And then he's like, all right, it's going to cost like $7,000. I was like, wait, 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 what's the leak? What's going on here? <laughs> and I'm like, I guess we have to do it. I don't, I don't know how else to, 
to, to and so, so I just paid him out of my own pocket. I was like, here, here you go. Like, I guess the rental was going to cover it eventually. So I gave like the LLC an interest-free loan while we kind of collected rent over the next few months. But, but for now I just have a loan out to the company uh, for this water repair, which is frustrating, but you had to do it. And then the next week I see him down there in a backhoe, like digging up the entire left side of the park. And I was just like, what is going on? What did I do? Why am I here? <laughs> and then like a week later, the uh, we have all these trees on the property, which I've been trying to like, we got to cut some of these trees down there. They seem a little hazardous. Uh, and there was one in particular, I thought if that one falls, it's going to fall on a power line and we're going to lose power, which won't be good. And then a week later, uh, the power goes out and I'm like, oh, that's, that stinks. Let me drive around and see what's going on. And that tree that I was just talking about fell on the power line and then the water stops, the heat stops. It's very cold. It was just like, I had to go set up a generator for the water pump. So that pumps water. The whole thing is like, I want to start a reality TV show up here. It's just like, I feel like every, <laughs> every day it's like a problem. And that's kind of what I realized with real estate. Maybe this is more of a mindset thing, but it's like every day is a, I almost expect problems to happen. Um, it's mostly just like solving problems. And then one day something good happens and you're like, oh, that was good. Like I refinanced and I made a bunch of money, but like most of the days it's just like, all right, now I have a problem and I have to fix it. So you kind of just like expect them to happen. And then eventually something good happens. It's kind of like compounding growth. Like eventually you, you don't see anything happening. Then one day something big happens and that's so, something big still needs to happen for me, but uh, I'm waiting patiently. <laughs> but you're, you're getting there. You're on your way. But I think that that's like the important lesson here though, right? Is that people make a lot of money in real estate investing because real estate investing isn't easy, right? It's, it's, it, it has its days where it's really hard and it's the people who can push past those difficult moments and continue to invest in real estate that see the real long-term benefits of doing so, right? Like, like, had you decided, you know, when you saw the, the $7,000 bill that you were just going to sell the place, you, you lose out on all the potential long-term gains that you're going to see. So for the folks that are listening, for the, for the rookies that haven't done that first deal yet, just know that bad things are going to happen point blank period. I've had stuff stolen from our properties. Um, you know, we've had guests whose whose homes have caught on fire. We had a show recently. I remember where a guest had to chase someone off of his property with a gun because they broke into his house. Crazy things happen as a real estate investor, but you deal with those things and you see the long-term benefit. Yeah. And that's something that I kind of realized when I wanted to get into real estate back a few years ago. Uh, so my background is in finance and like, I wanted to be in the stock market for a long time. Like in school, I was studying stocks and I was like, I want to be, you know, working at an investment management firm and picking stocks because that sounds fun. And I want to do that kind of research. <laughs> and then I'm kind of like realizing, okay, if you're the best stock picker out there, you're making 9% on your money when the benchmark is making 7%. So if you're like killing it, if you're the best of the best, you're making 9% when everyone else is making 7%, like that doesn't get me excited anymore. Like I thought, it just like, it took me a while to realize that. In real estate, you have so many, there's a reason that you get those kind of bigger outsized returns because it's work, it's risk. I mean, even if you have a property manager, manager company, you still need to find the deal. Um, you have to take debt out in your own name, often personally guarantee it. There's liquidity risk. You can't sell it. There's tons of, I mean, you can sell it, but there's closing costs. So there's just all these different things that lead to real estate generating outsized returns. And if you're comfortable with those risks, you should absolutely take them. But there are risks, obviously. And I think the fact that you had reserves in place that you could front that $7,000 is a, a great example of why it's very important to have reserves too. So that when something big does happen, you can, you know, a lot of times uh, a risk, something bad happen, that can be solved with money. Unfortunately, that is oftentimes a simple solution. So that's why it, it is wonderful to have reserves 
in place. Dan Sullivan, he was just recently on the on the OG podcast, and he's got a book out called Who Not How. And in that book, he says, if you have the money to solve a problem, then you don't have a problem. And when I heard that, it was like, man, that, that's so true, right? Like, if, if the money's there and the money can fix a problem, then what is there to stress about? You pay the money, you move on to the next problem. So it, it just tied in so well. I, I wanted to, to, to throw that in as well. Yeah, it just real quick, this is something personal for me to nothing to do with the show. But on that note is that we went to Walt Disney World a couple months ago and I, we decided to go down early, me and the kids. So I changed our flights. Well, somehow I did not change our flights correctly so that our actual flight and our return flight got canceled. And I didn't realize it until the day I went to go check in and we don't have any return flights home. And we had to book the day before and it you know, ended up being a thousand dollars and was like, Oh my God, like I, like I had booked it so far ahead, you know, that it was like, you know, $300 or something a lot cheaper, but it was like, it just showed that, you know, we, we've paid off debt, we've saved our money, we're investing in properties and, you know, it didn't matter. Like it was okay. Like we would just pay that. It wasn't like we would have to put it on a credit card or anything like that. And I think to get to a point in your life where you can have those reserves in place that you can throw money at something to make it not a problem. And like, that was our last day at Disney and we still enjoyed ourselves where like, take me back two, three years ago. Like I would have, it would have ruined the whole trip for us, like having to pull that thousand dollars from somewhere. So I, I'm going to have to to read that book for sure. I like that quote a lot, but okay. Back to Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually what we talked about in our clubhouse was uh you were saying we were both kind of i guess talking about how we don't take money out of any of our properties any of our llc's we're just yeah. constantly, like we have the, the accounts where we've had a state we have a stabilized property we just have a bunch of money in there now just in case something happens um because we don't want to be like scrambling for it when we need to replace a roof or something and at some point we're going to take money out but when we have a very very comfortable reserve so we kind of just been letting the money pile up as we as we collect rent checks and <laughs> my girlfriend jokes with me that I'm never going to take money out of my properties. I'm just going to keep <laughs> reinvesting it and we're never going to see any money. But one day I, I think we will. I promise. Right. And I tell my partner, I'm like, you know what? Let's not buy something for a little bit and just like see all that money collect because like we pretty, like all of our money is like go just to pay for the rehab. So we don't have to use hard money lenders or private money or anything. And then we'll be like, oh, but there's this property here. Let's go look at that. I'm going to pass that up. Yeah, It's an addiction. It's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Okay. So just to finally wrap up uh, this deal for you, well, you bought it for, what was it? 700 and... 40. 40. Okay. So what do you think that like now, did you increase the rents at all? What would this property actually appraise for? And then going forward, what... What do you actually see? What is your goal for this property? Are you going to hold it long-term? Are you guys going to sell it? What are your, I know you said you have a couple of development ideas for it. I think we want to develop it as much as we possibly can because that's where we can get some real value add. How are you guys going to fund that? Is that something you guys are saving for? Or are you guys going to do commercial lending on that? Just like the plan overall in general for this property, long-term hold, you're going to sell off parcels. Yes, I would say long-term hold, definitely long-term hold. Mm -hmm. I don't really want to, I can't see myself selling any real estate. I just think it makes sense to keep refinancing as we mm -hmm. kind of generate value, generate income, just kind of keep refinancing. It's the most tax efficient, probably smartest way to, to own real estate. I realized that at some point I probably will want to sell, but I'm not planning to over the next 10 years. So it's just going to be adding value and then refinancing when we've, when we've, when we've added value. Um, we do have some reserves in the bank. So, uh, 
there's two there's two things we're gonna pull on. One is the mobile home sale that we're doing, hopefully closing on in the near future, which will be $72,000. And the next one is that when we bought the property, the bank, oh, this is actually an interest. <laughs> I'm going off on tangents, but when we bought the property, the bank said, okay, uh, we don't know you. So you have to put down $37,000 as like in a reserve account. Um, so we got 70% loan, we got 75% loan to value financing, but we had to put down another 5%, which we can draw on in two years. So we essentially have, you know, around a hundred thousand dollars in the account. Um, and we're not going to develop probably for the next year anyway. So it's not going to be like a, a long wait time until we can access that money. Um, and back to that point about the financing, this is something that people kind of like to hear is that, uh, we didn't know how to finance this property. We thought who's going to finance something as crazy as this, who's going to buy something as crazy as this. And on top of that, what bank is going to finance something as crazy as this. And so that was like my next, like, how are we going to do this? Um, and I did, all I did was just ask the seller. I said, Hey, who do you use for financing? And he said, Oh, we use this bank. And I said, okay, can you connect me? And he said, sure. And talked to the bank for five minutes. And they were like, yeah, no problem. We'll give you 75% loan to value. And I was like, Oh, that was pretty easy. That sounds, <laughs> sounds good. Thank you. Yeah. See, that's a really cool story. And like Tony and I always talk about those small local banks. And I think you had even mentioned on when we talked about this on Clubhouse is how the, the, they said, oh yeah, we know that property. Like no problem. Like, because they were, it's a small town and they know the area and they know that that property has potential and you know, that it's generating income. So what, if you did pull out cash flow from this property, what would that cash flow be? Probably generating around two thousand a month in cash flow mm-hmm. after everything. So yeah. um, we did put a lot down. So it's not like it maybe sounds like a lot, but we put a lot. We put a lot of money down, and we split it three ways. So it's not like you know I'm not retiring off off that money anytime soon. It's really like a long term value I'd play. You're not doing like the Scrooge McDuck dive through all the the money yet, right? Like you're not diving into not yet. Feels like I'm doing the opposite. <laughs> it's uh, diving into an empty pool. But that, <laughs> but that, but that's that's the other piece too, right? Is like as you're building as you're in acquisition mode, like you're not really seeing a lot of the money, you know, and it's the same thing in our business right now as well. Like we're, we're scaling pretty aggressively in the short-term rental space, but we're literally taking all of our money and then some and putting it back into acquiring new properties. You know, like we've got six properties under contract right now, you know, and that's like a lot of capital outlay for our team, but we know it, we're we're doing it because we know that two years from now, five years from now, when all the, the portfolio is stabilized, that's when the cash flow is really going to come in. And, and, and that's when we're really going to feel like we can, you know, relax and take a, take a bit of a breather. All right. So Tommy, you've got, I think a really unique story and I've, I've hinted at this before. Um, you, you, you went the commercial route when, when most investors want to go the, the single family kind of burr route. What do you feel was like the, and you, and you touched on a little bit earlier, but what do you feel was the, how did you break through the fear of going after something so big so early? Right. Because investors, I think they're afraid to buy one property, a single family home, you know, but you went kind of just head first into buying these bigger deals. Why weren't you afraid of doing that? I was afraid. There's no okay. way around it. I was pretty <laughs> terrified. Uh, but you kind of just like fight through it. I, my favorite book is The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. And that book is just all about kind of like the things that are hard are good for you. And I mean, that's another thing that I think about here is like, there are a lot of hard things, you know, buying in New York state, there are a lot of regulations and stuff, but that's also generates more value, more. In, it's like, people don't want to deal with it. I want to deal with it. So it kind of creates greater returns. Everyone's buying, you know, down in Florida, down in Georgia, everyone's buying in those hot markets and the returns are compressed. But up here, I think you're probably getting at least higher cash flow from doing that kind of stuff and taking a more contrarian viewpoint on some of these things. So that is what also gave me comfort is just like, no one else is doing this. I 
maybe I'm just a contrarian by heart because people would probably have the opposite thought process now that I'm saying it out loud. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no one else is doing this. There must be some value or there's probably some, something good here that we can, we're probably getting a good deal because no one else wants to do this is my thought process, which I think most people would be like, that's ridiculous. And I think they might be right too. So, but I think that that's a good point, right? Because if you're, if you're doing things that other people aren't doing, I think that the perceived risk is higher, right? Like it's more risky because no one else is doing it. Whereas if you go do a bird property, like everyone's doing it, right? Like it's a proven process. So how did, how did you kind of mitigate that risk in your mind? Like, how did you see that risk and, and, and I guess just what's your, what are your thoughts on risks in general, right? Like how do you manage risk in your life and, and push past those? Yeah. It just like, doesn't feel that risky. I mean, like I understand it's risky, but after doing the first one and seeing how it went, like it's kind of to Ashley's point where it is just money. It's like, okay, what is the absolute worst case scenario here? It is just money. And I, my partner, the first time he, he said that exact same thing to me a few, few months ago. And like, I had a very, we had, we're having a very bad day. Something very wrong happened. And I was like, I am so like, it was partially my fault. I was like, I am so sorry. I am, I will never do this again. This, I messed up pretty bad. And he's like, ah, it's just money. And I was like, Hey, that's a great idea. That's a good point. It is just money. <laughs> um, so it's just like, at the end of the day, it's thinking about what is the worst possible case scenario. So, and usually it's honestly not that bad. And even if you think of like a medium downside scenario, it's also just like, ah, I'll probably sell it for a slight loss. Um, real estate is just very forgiving. And I think the fact that you're thinking of what is the worst case scenario that it makes you prepare for that. So you know what what you would do in that situation. You know that you could put money up. You could, you know, call this person to get advice or that's a, a big thing is like, what is that worst case scenario for you? And then solve that problem before the worst case scenario happens. And we also do like I still have a full time job. My partner still has a full time job. So it's mm -hmm. not like if this goes wrong, you know, we would lose money, but we also still have that kind of we, we have a, a job that I'm going to have for a long time. Probably it's not like, you know when I think about my lifetime of earnings, earnings potential, this maybe seems, it seems expensive right now, but in the grand scheme of things, hopefully it's not going to, you know, completely destroy me or sink me. It's just, it's going to suck for uh, a few months, maybe a year. Let's move on to our next segment. So this is the rookie request line. Uh, anybody can give us a call at one 5 rookie and leave us a voicemail with your question. And we might play it on our show to have our guest answer. So are you ready, Tommy? I'm ready. Hi, my name is James Back. I'm located in Hamilton, Ohio, just north of Cincinnati. I've been listening to the show for a long time since you guys started it. So my question is, I have two properties now that are investment properties, single family homes. I've been cold calling. I'm just doing skip tracing to find potential sellers. And I've been cold calling and I have a gentleman who has a four unit that I gave him an offer on. He never really told me if he was interested or not. He wants to sit down and have coffee. This being my first experience cold calling and actually meeting up, what should I expect from this cup of coffee? I mean, should I take a contract with me, offer him money, you know, get it signed? Or is this just more of like a meet and greet? How would you guys handle this? For me, that sounds like an ideal way to start a relationship, start a conversation, just like network with him, talk to him. Uh, I mean, I think if that deal doesn't work out, another one very well might work out. It's just, you kind of have to treat everything like it's not the end of the world if you don't find a deal this time. It's just part of the process. And you're going to have a lot of kind of steps along the way until you finally land that first deal. It just, you know, you just have to keep kind of chipping away until you do eventually get that first deal. So I, I think just using it almost like a networking kind of thing and asking him how he got the four unit in the first place, just talking to him about his story, let him, you know, let him talk. I think letting people talk is a powerful thing starting a relationship. That is such a great point. Just go there and listen. And like the biggest thing you could figure out from listening to him is what is his motivation for selling and 
what can you do to to be that person to help him to get out of why ever he potentially needs to sell this property? And that could be a great reason that he accepts your offer because you listened to him and figured out what he really needs. Maybe he doesn't even need money. He just, you know, needs to get rid of this property and maybe you can help him find a new property or something like that. But I love that answer is really to to listen and take that opportunity to to listen to him and make sure you pay for his cup of coffee too. <laughs> <laughs> and also follow up too. I think that's one of the biggest things yeah. that I've been telling people is that like, I have so many people trying to break into the industry or break into real estate and they call me and they talk to me one time for a half an hour and then I never hear from them again. I'm just like, mm-hmm. and I'm saying, listen, let me know what happens. Like, I want to know if you got a job. I want to know if you bought a deal. I want to know yeah. what's going on. Like I just invested a half hour to an hour in of my life into your life. So can you please kind of follow up with me? And no one follows up. I'm just like, I, I, I want to be friends with you. I want to help you. Yeah. And like, <laughs> this is a crazy thing. Just like, let me know what's going on in your life. It's not hard. Text me, ask me how, you know, ask me about the NBA. Ask me about the Knicks. I don't care. Just, <laughs> just talk to me. A little <laughs> glimpse into Tommy's life, living in some desolate town in upstate New York. Please, I need friends. That's <laughs> uh, too real. I want to add, I want to add one more thing to, uh, to James question here. So he asked at the end, like, should I take a contract with me? Should I offer money? Should I try and get it signed? And my, my thought process on all those things is yes. Like if you've, if you've had that conversation and you feel that there's a motivated seller that you got, that that you're able to, to solve that problem, like Ashley said, heck yeah, get the, get the contract signed, you know, sign it right there if you can. And don't be afraid to make the offer. Even if it's, even if it's what you feel is a low ball offer, the worst that they're going to say is no. And you can always walk them through how you came up to your offer, right? Like say that that seller is asking for 200K, you think the offer only makes sense at 100K, you can say, hey, I'm gonna make an offer, you know, it's probably gonna sound really low, but let me walk you through why this is my number. And you say, you know, the property's only gonna be worth this much, repair's gonna be this much, I still need to make a profit of this much. And you can be honest with them and, and kind of walk them through that. But yes, absolutely, uh, make an offer, get the contract signed if you can. And I think you could, instead of even a contract, like if you don't feel comfortable going straight forward with an actual contract, you could do a letter of intent. So if you just Google that online, you can look up sample documents and you just fill that out. And it's a little more informal, but I feel like if you're just meeting this person for a general conversation, they might be more comfortable with that than you just immediately pushing a contract on them where it's just like, hey, this is a you know letter. This is if you wanted to sign this, this is what I'd be interested in. And you just put the property address in, what your terms are, how you want to purchase it, what your purchase price is. And, you know, it just really simplifies a document. I mean, New York State, a real estate contract is how many pages long where this just puts everything onto basically one page as to what the key terms are of this purchase. And, you know, just a little simpler for something for someone to review. And then after they do sign that letter of intent, then you can go to your attorney, whoever you use to drop your real estate contract and then, you know, meet up with him to, to actually get that signed again. I'm actually dropping knowledge. <laughs> All right, Tommy, you ready for, for the next segment here, brother? We're going to ask you a few random questions as we, as we round this thing up. Please. You know, I'm curious, what what asset classes are you looking at in the future? Like, like just really quick. So for myself, I'm, you know, I have long term rentals, short term rentals, but I know one of the asset classes I eventually want to get into is storage. Like, I love the idea of storage. It's, you know, it's something that I think works well in California as well. So with some of your experience so far, you know, what do you feel is on the horizon in terms of additional asset classes? I like the idea of staying in the mobile home park space and also the storage space. I kind of just want to get into, I know I need to pick a niche at some point and just kind of run with it, but I just want to find deals that don't make sense for anyone else, but make sense for me because I'm a little bit out there. Just something like, just be a little bit more unique, be a little more contrarian uh, with how I kind of think about 
some real estate deals. Um, I do, but there's a specific asset classes. I do like mobile home parks. I do like storage. I like mobile home parks because a lot of people have kind of like a, a box of like, I need to buy a mobile home park. That's this, 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 like a city water, city sewer, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, well, what if we perfect, like, what if I get my water certification and I can like have, have a private well? And like, what if I'm just really good at private water? What if I'm just really good at private sewer? What if I, you know, own a, start a septic company? I don't know, <laughs> stuff like that. And just like kind of develop some really unique way to, I guess, see see value where other people doesn't, don't see value. Cause just cause it's easier to, to get deals done in the space where there's not as much competition. Competition kind of doesn't freak me out, but it just, I'd prefer to stay away from competition if I can. Yeah, that's like my market too, is there, you know, the very rural areas, there's not a ton of competition, especially for rental properties doing that. So it's a lot easier to get into, I would say, but you also have to know the market a lot more. And I think that's a big, huge benefit to me is that I live in the rural area. So I know everything um, in this area where like some, an out of state investor coming into that market, it might be a, a lot more difficult to know, like, okay, this little tiny town, like, What's the good area of this where it's a lot easier as an out-of-state investor to actually analyze like a bigger city? So I just love how you basically just found this little tiny town and, you know, it's moved there, you know. I want to hear a a story. So we kind of heard your toilet bowl story before. What is like a mindset shift story that you had? It could be related to real estate or or not, or something that prepared you to get into real estate and to to hold your own as a real estate investor. So it's not about real estate, but it is a story that everyone I know and has told to has told us to really enjoys it. It's it's pretty crazy. Um, well, that's perfect. We love crazy stories on here. <laughs> all right. Well, here we go. A few years ago, I was in I was in Denver for work on a Thursday and a Friday, and I was going to go skiing for the weekend with some friends that I knew in the area. Um, but they all like, you know, at the last minute, they're like, oh, I don't want to go. I can't go this weekend. So I was like, oh, that, that sucks. I guess I guess I'll just go by myself. And so I rented a pickup truck and just started driving to the ski mountain by myself early on a Saturday morning. <laughs> and I pulled over into a Starbucks to pick up some sandwiches before I went skiing. And there was this woman in the Starbucks that she came over and she said, Hey, uh, can you uh, just give me a, like a ride right down the street? And I was kind of like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> like, she's like, Oh, it's just right down the road. Don't worry. Like we're, it's not gonna be long. I was like, okay. Like she, she seemed like she needed a ride. And I was like, yeah, I will help you. She didn't seem too, she seemed heartless. Is this your first time picking up a hitchhiker? <laughs> first and only time. <laughs> this is how every like scary movie starts, right? Like, yeah. you know, young, unassuming, handsome guy stops at a, you know, roadside, you know, and Sarah, I'm curious where this goes. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, it's crazy. So we get in the car and it's her and her daughter, uh, which I had who I had not seen at, at first, but they both got in the car with her stuff. And they're like, okay, yeah, so we're going to, uh, we're going to Aspen, which is like three hours away. And I was like a half hour away from my destination. So I was like right there. I was ready to go skiing. And they're like, yeah, we're going to Aspen. Uh, do you want to come with us? And I was like, uh, I don't know. And I was like, and I turned to like her daughter because she was the one asking me. And I was like, do you mind if I come with you on like your family vacation? <laughs> and she was just like, I guess. <laughs> And so we started driving and we were in the car. There was so much traffic. We were in the car for like six hours. I was like bonding with these people. <laughs> it was so funny. And to make it, it's, I mean, it's a very long story, but to make it much shorter, I spent the whole weekend with them. They were, it was very fun. They were super nice. I stayed with them in Aspen. It was, ended up being her and her like three daughters that I was with. And, you know, we went out and it was a lot of fun. I went seeing with them the next day. And they were also super impressive too. Like, I was like, man, these people like know what's going on. The, like the mother had written a book. The kids were like, Ivy League schools going <laughs> really big plans. And I was like, 
man, when I was in school, this is not what I was doing. I was very much not in this path. I had a great time. We left. They were from New York. I was from New York. I was like, let's let's hang out in the city when I'm back. Like, this is going to be great. We're like new good friends. And so then I get in the car and I start driving home and I'm like, mom, I had the craziest weekend. <laughs> so I call my mom, obviously. And she, I was like, yeah. And I was like, yeah, the mom wrote a book and the girls are really impressive. Uh, and she's like, oh, well, what was the book's name? I was like, I don't know. But, you know, and so she Googled her and she was like, oh, Tommy, you know, this is like uh, a Kennedy. And I said, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> and it was like the, uh, a daughter of Robert Kennedy Jr. And I was just like, huh, that is, that is pretty wild. <laughs> I have so many questions. Like, how did they get stranded at Starbucks? First of all, right. like, who left them? <laughs> that is the first, that is the first question. Yeah. <laughs> But so, okay, so how does this like tie into mindset? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me is like, okay, this probably was out of your comfort zone. I mean, maybe not for them, but for you, I mean, picking up people and then end up spending them the whole weekend with them. Yeah, it is It is crazy. It is like completely crazy. And at the time I was like, this is this is insane. Like my mom, this is something my mom would do. My mom's like crazy. She would do the same thing. Yeah. Um, and it's just like saying yes and getting out of your comfort zone and just kind of feeling like when you get out of your comfort zone, you either get killed by hitchhikers or have a really cool story. I got lucky. It was the, it was the second part of that, but um, so I don't recommend doing that. And even after this is kind of funny, after that happened and we became friends, like the next day, they're like, it's cool that you did this, but you shouldn't do this again. Uh, don't pick people up. Like, don't pick strangers up. That's oh gotta be God. one of the best stories that we've heard on this podcast. And we've heard some crazy things so far. So that, that's, that's up there, man. And it's just like, I had no idea the whole time. And then like back to New York and they're like, Hey, you come over for this. I'm like, okay, this is the most insane thing ever. And I didn't even think it was that crazy at first, but then I started telling people, I was like, yeah, I had this crazy story. And they're like, they could not believe this story. I was like, I guess it is pretty crazy. Cause like, I just spent the weekend with them. I thought they were normal people, like just perfect, like a, a nice family. I was like, this is, yeah. this is hilarious. I have new friends. And then, and then it was like going crazy. Like that's the craziest story I've ever heard. So kind of a funny, but yeah, just it being is. open to things. Tommy, you need to share with us where people can find out more information about you or if they're ever stranded at a Starbucks and need a ride or <laughs> need someone to ski with, please tell us where they can find more information about you. Uh, they can definitely email me at tappolisi at gmail.com. So just TA and my last name at Gmail. Um, and I also have been getting a little more active on social media. My sister, uh, Julie, has been uh, crushing it on my social media, uh, investing.adventure. <laughs> so we're trying to kind of just like as you can tell, we have ridiculous properties. Like it doesn't make any sense what we're doing. So we just kind of thought it, like we do things on a daily basis. We're like, this is, this is crazy. Like we need to have like a camera following us around. Cause like we get into these crazy situations at the laundromat where these people are like, I can't even like begin to describe what, what happens there. And like, I just feel like we need to document some of this stuff. I think we need to get you on the business podcast and you can talk about the whole laundromat venture on there. <laughs> oh my God. That needs more than a podcast. That needs like a book at this point. But yeah, so investing that adventure is a, is our Instagram handle. Well, thank you so much for all the information and the laughs that you uh, shared with us today. I had so much fun. This was awesome. Thank you very much for having me. Make sure you guys uh, join the Real Estate Rookie Facebook group and then also uh, leave us a review. We'd appreciate five stars because you guys love Tony and I and Tommy. <laughs> so I am Ashley Kerr at Wellcome Rentals and he's Tony Robinson at Tony J. Robinson on Instagram. And thank you guys so much for listening. We will see you next time. The 
market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. There's free resources only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.